episode 260 of the Stem Cell Podcast, Synchronized Tissue Regeneration with Dr. Shiri Gurkhoen. Hey, everybody. We are Drs. Daylon James and Arun Sharma. Welcome back to the Stem Cell Podcast, where we culture knowledge and stem cell research by talking to some of the brightest minds in the field. The Stem Cell Podcast is brought to you by Stem Cell Technologies, a global biotechnology company supporting life science research and fostering communication and collaboration in science. If you enjoy the Stem Cell Podcast, please rate us and leave a review. We're always looking for feedback on how the podcast can be improved and for suggestions on guests. Today, we have Dr. Shiri Gurkhoen from UC San Diego. She's on the podcast to talk about her research on dynamic tissue renewal. We've also got our usual roundup of recent highlights and stem cell news that's coming right up. But first, as we know, ISSCR 2024 is coming right up in July 10th to 13th this year in Hamburg, Germany. We look forward to attending and would like to remind our listeners to register by February 14th for the best registration rates. Abstracts need to be submitted by February 14th to be considered for an oral presentation, as well as merit and poster awards. So get on it, and we'll see you there. And yeah, we're super excited to go to ISCR in just a few short months now. We'll be traveling in person over Germany, so we'll see you there. Starting things off with the roundup for this week, it's a fun little Nature Biotech article coming from one of our friends in the show, uh, Sergio Pasca, and also co-last author on this paper is Ban Xiao Shui from Stanford. First author is Xiao Yang. Um, and this is, like I said, Nature Biotech article. In my mind, a very Stanford-esque article because you have the biology, the biological question, and you're intersecting it with the engineering. And as we know, Stanford has a real strength in both of those departments. So the title of this paper is Pirigami Electrodes for Long-Term Electrophysiological Recording of Human Neural Organoids and Assemblies. So because it's a Nature Biotech article, you know, we're going to talk about the cool tech that's in this, in this paper. And that's really what it's all about. So, um, you know, we know all about these organoids and assembloids that the Pasca Lab has been putting together for, for a while now. We've covered a number of Sergio's papers on the show. We've had him on the show as well, multiple times. Um, really great model systems to study neurodevelopment, neurodevelopmental disorders, all sorts of stuff, right? Um, and one thing that they're still working on and that we still need for the analysis of these organoids long-term is longitudinal mon monitoring, okay? So how do you monitor these things for their electrophysiological activity over the course of, say, months? Because these organoids, these cortical assembloids, organoids, they can last for, for a long time, right? So the current technologies, current state-of-the-art that's been around forever is patch clamp, right? Which, and I've worked with patch clamp a little bit, what you got to do is basically poke the cells. It's invasive, right? So you got to penetrate the, the organoid population with your microelectrodes. Um, and it's, it's invasive, right? You're disturbing the innate architecture of the organoid or neuron or whatever. Uh, there's alternatives, these like planar electrode arrays, substrate attached, flexible electrodes, but they don't always allow chronic recording of organoids in suspension. That's the other part of this is the, the Pascal lab does a lot of their culture in suspension. And as we know, organoids and assembloids like to be grown in suspension. So what they need is a system that can monitor the electrophysiological activity of these organoids in suspension um, 
that preserves the architecture of the assembloid or organoid. So here they were inspired by this type of Japanese art called kirigami, right? It's sort of analogous to origami, sort of, um, but kirigami that was their inspiration for developing this almost like a basket-shaped electrode um, to they created these flexible electronics. And this was really led by the, the Shui Lab, which has an expertise in these um, uh, electronics development, basically. Um, and so they had these flexible basket-like electrodes that allowed this transition from a two-dimensional to a three-dimensional configuration um, with a spiral or honeycomb patterns. I mean, I can talk about this, but you'll just have to look at the paper itself and the, the first couple of figures just to see what I'm talking about, you know, when it comes to the actual organization of these electrodes. It's really, really cool to see. But ultimately, they applied these Karagami electrodes to... Um, to monitor in long-term culture their organoids in suspension. And what they can do is they can interrogate um, these organoids for up to 120 days while preserving their morphology, the cytoarchitecture, cell composition. So this is all important. You're not disturbing the organoid and allowing, you're basically non-invasively monitoring this thing long-term. Then they further applied this because um, just next door to the Posca lab, they have a bunch of other cool resources like the optogenic facilities led by Carl Dyseroth and all these other folks. So um, also at Stanford. So they integrated their Kirigami electronics plus their organoids with optogenetic reporters built into their organoids. Also some pharmacological manipulation, allowing them to model disease phenotypes related to different genetic diseases associated with uh, neurodevelopment. Um, and then, yeah, like in addition to the organoids, they extend this to the assembloids, which is, of course, the new generation of the organoids that the Pasca lab is working on, these multiple organoids stuck together. And this Kiri-E Kirigami electrode was really successful in monitoring those assembloids as well. So it's a, it's a tech paper, right? You're talking about the development, this non-invasive, development of this non-invasive system for monitoring organoids long-term for their electrophysiological activity in suspension and its ultimate application for disease modeling, drug screening, and so on. Uh, yes, a tech paper. Uh, for my, my view, this could have been a methods paper as, as much as it could have been a nature biotech paper, um, which isn't uh, to you know put it down at all. Both amazing high-impact journals. I think common denominator there being that it, explain or you know lays out a new tool uh that is likely to be used very widely and uh provides a real advance i think and for me looking at the 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 pictures here i think you said it there or you could describe it all but you got to look at the picture and for me when i saw the picture of the that little nest or basket as they they call them it really planted the seed of like a sci-fi seed for me where i could visualize some you know probably far-fetched and unrealistic future but just conceptually speaking you know a bunch of organoids nested in whatever you know high-tech lab of the future where the the key point there is not the visual as much as the application where you have the, that consistent relatively less invasive non-invasive i would say passive monitoring over these longitudinal time scales and what I'm thinking there is the next stage, if you can monitor 
then you can incorporate some feedback. And then what we're talking about is essentially modeling embryogenesis in a way that's much more faithful. You know, I know I'm getting way ahead, but that's what I love about these big impact stories where the tool is an advance in itself, but just the seed it plants um, and the way you can visualize how it might be applied in the future, uh, I think is, is even more exciting than the current application, which is plenty exciting. You know, we need to have this non-invasive monitoring, but I'm thinking about not just monitoring, but then intervening and influencing in response to all these signals. You know, they say in the end of this paper that in the future they can incorporate their pH monitoring, oxygen, neurotransmitter sensors, micro LEDs uh, for that optogenetics. I mean, in the playground they have their, you know, that sandbox at Stanford is so much fun. You can imagine that they're going to take all these uh, you know, bells and whistles and add them into the system to make a, a real pivotal tool for advancing not just our ability to monitor, but to influence uh, the development, faithful development of not just neural organoids, but all types. Yeah, I totally agree with you. I think um, the ultimate application for this beyond neuro is what excites me. And, you know, I didn't even think about the embryonic develop, uh, developmental modeling. That's really cool. I mean, you can envision a scenario where you have these like blastoid structures or whatever three-dimensional embryo model that we've talked about on the show forever. And you want to monitor how that thing's actually growing without poking and prodding it, right? Or harvesting cells from it or whatever, non-invasively. And that's what this is enabling. I mean, even for my own work, for cardiac modeling, cardiac development modeling or disease modeling in the cardiovascular field, we have our own organoids and assembloids that we wanted to monitor, monitor, you know, for the electrophysiological activity for many, many months. And this exact system could be used for that. So Sergio, if you're listening, we'd love to collaborate. <laughs> always, always. His, his phone is ringing off the hook, but he'll make time for us because we're friends, right, Sergio? Come on, pick up the phone. Um, you know, speaking to what we're talking about here in terms of the time scale, right? Culturing these organoids for extended periods in these kirigami mesh meshes. Um, the reason why we want to do that is sometimes that we need to do that. And particularly when we're looking at human organoids, uh, which have a pace of development that's relatively protracted. I mean, relative to the mouse, which we typically look at, but also... Uh, even relative to to primates, um, and those differences seem to be intrinsic. They're maintained uh, once you take the cells out of the body, right? And even from the points of pluripotency, these cells take a, a lot longer to mature than their mouse counterparts. And the mechanisms that govern this are not really well understood. We've talked about it a lot on the show. I mean, namely, just a couple of weeks ago, Last episode, I think we talked about this gentonics mix, which we had talked about, you know, years in advance. It's been in review for a long time. It's a bit of a hack. Um, uh, but the mechanisms that drive that cell intrinsic developmental timescale differences are not really well understood, although they've been attributed, attributed to mitochondria, metabolic differences, a lot uh, of uh, evidence supporting different uh, uh, reasons, uh, and probably all of them contribute, but there's still a lot left to be discovered. Um, particularly when you look at like mouse versus human, for example, neuronal maturations, tenfold difference um, in, in uh, human cerebral cortex, uh, that maturation can continue for years postnatally. 
All right. So we're talking about timescales that maybe aren't practical experimentally if we're trying to recapitulate some of the uh, either normal or pathological development. Um, and of course, the, the cortical neurons derived from human pluripotent stem cells similarly require months to reach these mature milestones of electrophysiological function or synaptic function. Um, so why, right? The, there's something to do with the environment. Extrinsic signals probably uh, play a role, but as I alluded to, uh, the, it seems to be hardwired, cell intrinsic. So trying to unravel the mechanisms here in this story, uh, building on years of work and the story we just kind of published about the hack with Gentonics, we have another paper from Studer Lab here, an article in Nature uh, with co-corresponding and lead author Gabriella Ciceri, who clearly is going to take this work uh, into his own laboratory any day, any day now. I mean, a lot of questions to follow from this story. Um, but here, uh, they set up this really nice system uh, for exploring the, the basis of the cell intrinsic developmental timing. And the first thing there was they developed a system where they could synchronize the birth of these cortical neurons so that they'd all come out at the same time. And that allowed them to, to generate this atlas of the, the uh, milestones, landmarks, morphological, functional, molecular uh, milestones of, of maturation. Um, and then using these milestones, they then went deeper mechanistically into what the program was there and showed that it was really about epigenetic factors, right? And not surprisingly, perhaps, uh, there was these epigenetic network uh, or axis that uh, was governing the, the developmental timing. And when you induce loss of function of these factors, you got precocious maturation. And, and more importantly, they had this kind of transient uh, system where they had transient inhibition of these epigenetic factors and these cells were primed uh, to rapidly mature uh, immediately following differentiation. So another hack here, here more like a genetic hack, really going deeper mechanistically as a hack, uh, but at the, to the same endpoint, they can accelerate developmental timing uh, in this human system. Um, and I mean, this is, I think, a, a really big deal, uh, adding to the practicality of that gentonics mix, and I'm sure there's some intersection of that extrinsic modulator and these epigenetic factors. I'm sure it's, it is a link there, and we'll have to see how those are connected. Uh, but I think a major step forward in just trying to understand uh, what it is that dictates this cell intrinsic, hardwired, baked in uh, developmental timing and how to overcome it. Yeah, this is, a, I think, a really important study. And here we are in 2024 and still trying to unravel the mysteries of cell maturation, at least when it comes to cells derived from pluripotent stem cells. You know, whether it's neurons, whether it's cardiomyocytes, I think we're all trying to dissect the mechanisms of how these things actually become more mature. Um, I think, and ultimately, there is a, a translational vein to this. I mean, this is a very solid basic science study coming from the Studer lab. But as we know, Lorenz's work has been applied towards translational applications, towards Blue Rock Therapeutics. You know, they're making, of course, stem cell-derived dopaminergic neurons for Parkinson's applications and so on. And ultimately, if the goal is to make mature neurons and the best neurons you possibly can, then this could be a very, very useful data set to rely on. So I think ultimately, yeah, a very powerful data set. We'll see what's going to come next here. And I do also like the 
small evolutionary element that was in the story. They looked at epigenetic barrier across species as well. So a lot, a lot to unpack here. Yeah. And as you were saying, I mean, how can we apply this to other cell types, other systems? I mean, cardiomyocytes much, right? Uh, we talked about in the Gentonic story, they were able to use that same mixture uh, to accelerate maturation of beta cells, right? So I, I think that there is a kind of a blanket approach. We'll have to see if these specific epigenetic modulators that were identified here are at play in even other neuronal subtypes, uh, much less other tissues. But I, I would speculate that this same approach would be useful. Uh, I don't know about across the board, but certainly in other cell types. Um, and, you know, just generally speaking, I think can expand uh, the, the tool set and give us a lot more latitude in the platforms that are available to go later in development, which is becoming a lot more salient uh, as we approach a clinical translation of these cells. Yeah, absolutely. And you hinted at the evolutionary part of it as well. I mean, are there is that code conserved or not across different species when it comes to the developmental trajectory and the timing of all of this? So a lot of unanswered questions and can't wait to see what Gabrielle is going to do next. So moving on to something a little different. I'm going to step out of the brain for a little bit here. Uh, talk a little bit about the gut-liver axis, all right? So there is a an axis that you may, may or may not know about between the gut and the liver, and they cross-talk, communicate, talk to each other uh, to regulate all sorts of stem cell function, in particular in the intestine. Um, so this is a cell paper really just titled Gut-Liver Axis Calibrates Intestinal Stem Cell Fitness. So short, sweet, to the point, right? So this is coming from the NIH over there at the NCI um, from the lab of Xuan Wu. First author here is Girat Kim. So for decades now, I mean, I might not know this, but the field knows this, that there's this communication that's happening between the gut and the liver. And they are recognized to mutually communicate through the biliary tract, the portal vein, systemic circulation, so on, right? Everything's really connected through systemic circulation, but the gut and liver in particular are pretty closely connected here. But in terms of how this communication is actually regulated, that's not super clear, all right? Um, there are a lot of unanswered questions. What are the, the ligands, secreted factors, if there are any that regulate this crosstalk between these two organs? So through hepatectomy and also a bunch of transcriptional proteomic profiling, they actually identified this pigment epithelial-derived factor, PEDF, which is a is actually a Wnt inhibitor, not unlike something all sorts of Wnt inhibitors that are out there. So it's a secreted Wnt inhibitor from the liver, it's soluble. And ultimately what it's doing, and this is, I think, really, really cool, it's regulating intestinal stem cell proliferation. All right. So as a Wnt inhibitor, it's actually blocking, restraining intestinal stem cell hyperproliferation. Um, we know through many years of work, through Hans Klebers and all these other folks, that Wnt signaling is super important for regulating that intestinal stem cell niche and regulating the proliferation of the, the stem cells in that niche, right? So this PEDF is one of those Wnt inhibitors that's actually doing that, but it's coming from the liver, not from the intestine itself. That's pretty wild. Um, so ultimately, this is important to maintain gut homeostasis through, again, Wnt signaling. And the other part of this, and I think this is part of the reason why this is a cell paper. They found that actually microbial danger, so actually messing up the microbiome in the gut, can cause 
crosstalk to occur from the, the liver to the gut. So microbial danger signals coming from intestinal inflammation can actually be sensed, quote, sensed by the liver, leading to this repression of the PEDF production. And if you're repressing the Wnt inhibitor, you got activation, right? And so that means you're getting an activation in the intestinal stem cell populations. And this is regulated through PPAR alpha, peroxone proliferated regulated receptor alpha. Um, so it's kind of a double negative here. So you have this repression, which is liberating the intestinal stem cell proliferation, ultimately to accelerate the tissue repair in the gut. Okay. Um, and that's how these uh, organs are cross-talking, are interacting with each other through this uh, secreted molecule that's when you get rid of it, it's going to hyperactivate intestinal stem cell populations. In the situation of disease, you need a higher intestinal stem cell population to actually repair the gut. Um, and then they did a bunch of other applications of this, treating mice with um, phenofibrate, which is actually a clinical PPAR alpha agonist used for different applications like hypolipidemia. Uh, it actually enhances colitis susceptibility due to the enhanced activity of this PEDF. So this is, I think, a really cool study because it's, you know, identifying a molecule that is having an impact on an organ that's completely adjacent to the one from which it's produced, right? This uh, PDF secreted ligand. And it's amazing. It's, it's regulating intestinal stem cell function and proliferation uh, through the Wnt signaling pathway. And the question that I have is if it's able to crosstalk with the liver and between the liver and the gut in this way through this one secreted molecule and has such a dramatic impact on intestinal stem cell proliferation, where else is this PEDF regulating function, right? As we know, wind signaling is not just critical for intestinal populations and intestinal stem cell populations, it has all sorts of regulatory roles across the body. So can this PEDF secrete a molecule from the liver actually regulate other stem cell populations across the body as well. So really cool basic study here. I mean, you know, it's a cell paper. It's super in-depth, really mechanistic, detailed. Um, but I think a lot of interesting questions arising from this. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing to me. It's over 100 years later. So the first hormone ever described, secretin, uh, that was the curiosity of it, you know, is that it was made by the duodenum and then it 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 traveled and caused the influx of water elsewhere, right? An adjacent site. And that was like the illustra illustration, first illustration of this idea of action at a distance here, defining hormones. And here we are 120 something years later, and we're still trying to pick this thing apart and coming up with new concepts. In this case, Another action at a distance, but here secreted ligands. And I guess the take home for me is that at every level, you know, distal organs, adjacent, autocrine, there's all this signaling that we, I mean, we've scratched the surface for sure in a in hundred years, but there's a lot left to discover. Um, and it makes me wonder about, you know, like PEDF in this case, never heard of it, pigment epithelial derived factor, but here, it's doing something amazing. Who knows what else is is acting within this axis, uh, the gut-liver axis, and as you said, how this PDF may be acting in other systems. Um, and it really makes me wonder in my own science, like, you know, when you're running through your RNA-seq results or your single-cell results, what you get, you get a list of genes, right? And you can't look at every single one of those things on Google or you try. 
So your first scan is you're just scanning all the things that jump out at you, right? And the things that jump out at you are the things that you've already learned a lot about. PEDF, honestly, probably would jump out at me. Anytime I see a F at the end, I see factor and my eyes light up. But like, there's all these factors that, that haven't really been well described in the literature uh, or at all um, beyond their basic description of origin. And uh, here they are modulating really important physiological mechanisms you know i don't know it feels like we've only scratched the surface through and i gotta take another look at my rna seq results yeah me too i mean it, i think it's more to it than just the rna as well you have to look at the secretome so you actually have to look at the actual ligands being produced and secreted through like proteomics so they use a ton of proteomics data to actually figure that out um also just the ability to interrogate this in an in vivo system is so complex. So I really respect them for doing this. There's so many moving parts. I mean, what I would have done as a very naive in vitro biologist is, is I would have tried to tease this apart in independent cell populations. So you have the hepatocyte population adjacent to the isolated intestinal stem cell or organoid population and see if you can actually dissect in like a rudimentary system, very simplified system, to dissect if this PDF can still have an influence in that system, right? Um, maybe they're doing it. Maybe they're going to do it in, in some capacity. But ultimately, I think demonstrating this in vivo is even more powerful, right? Um, because it's in the systemic circulation. It's in the milieu. It's in the, the portal vein, all this stuff. It's doing its thing. And then, yeah, the next question is for me and for them as well is what about other stem cell populations? Like in, I don't know, the skin, they actually mentioned the skin. So can this PDF actually regulate stem cell fitness in those populations too? And my my guess is that it is. <laughs> and the other part of it is, and I know how they like to set up these subsequent studies, right? The very last sentence in this paper in the limitation study uh, section is, you know, what about the skin? So maybe this is going to be their next paper. Who knows? Would not be surprised, although, as you said, this this the in the whole animal uh, to get a phenotype and to really dissect, interrogate any mechanism, chaos. So very impressive for this story. And uh, I, I guess a segue into my next story, which I think illustrates also the complexity of the milieu. Uh, and similarly, this group in a in a mouse system, I think goes a long way to define what critical factors in a regenerative process are. In this case, in the lung and in a context that's highly relevant uh, to our modern day, speaking of response to injury, uh, particularly injury that that is driven by viral pneumonia, which is what's caused by COVID or also influenza A, H1N1. Uh, and this pneumonia ultimately leads to acute respiratory distress syndrome, which is what was the major killer. One of, or probably I would say the biggest killer for COVID and is the biggest killer for, for influenza and other respiratory distress uh, diseases, uh, has a very high mortality rate. Um, so what is it? It's a disease of the lung, right? And, and when you look at the lung, what the lung really is, and this is, you know, my vascular bias showing itself, but the lung is effectively a bag of vasculature, right? And that's because it's the major point of gas exchange, which is mediated primarily or in large part by endothelial cells. You know, alveoli I know are the, are the engines of the lung, but the actual place where the oxygen and gas goes into the blood, it's, it's by the endothelium. 
Um, and that's why endothelial cells, the most abundant cell type in the lungs, just a bag of ECs. Uh, and as my mentor has hammered into my head over many years, still talks to me about it. Endothelial cells are critical players in response to injury, uh, even, you know, just uh, maintaining any system, but critically in, in regenerative processes, the angiocrine uh, factors from endothelial cells play a crit critical role. And that's been shown in many systems, including the lung. Um, work from this group, in particular, Andrew Vaughn, uh, who's at UPenn, um, they have uh, shown that endothelial repair is a prerequisite for regenerative recovery from pneumonia. Um, and for that reason, uh, in this story and many other groups are targeting endothelial cells, you know, or enhancing that endothelial capability as a, as a means of improving uh, recovery from uh, lung injury. Uh, but it's tough to target the lung vasculature uh, safely. Um, and also adding to that, the, the mechanisms that underlie the how endothelium governs lung repair are, are not well understood. There's some of these angiocrine factors that have been identified. Uh, but there's still a lot left to know. So again, this group, Andrew Vaughn's group, they previously showed a bunch of factors. It's CoopTF2 by way of uh, enhancing VEGFR2, vascular endothelial growth factor signaling, um, and downstream of uh, transforming growth factor beta signaling. So uh, effectively, they've linked uh, TGF beta with VEGF signaling and identify those as, as, or that as one axis uh, of lung repair um, involving endothelial cells. And here, they dig a little bit deeper, um, showing that indeed the TGF beta signaling is activated in lung endothelial cells after influenza infection. Uh, and here, mechanistically speaking, they, they show that if you knock out the TGF beta receptor, specifically endothelium, you get a prolonged uh, injury. Uh, and the vascular repair capability is reduced. Um, and again, following down the mechanistic links there, they show that it's the loss of autocrine VEGF A signaling. So there's reduced VEGF created um, by the actual endothelial cells there to repair themselves. So it seems like TGF beta via VEGF signaling. Again, this is kind of underscoring what they've shown already, but showing it in a system in the context of influenza affection. And then here, to take it to the level of science, science translational medicine, they show an intervention. And here, the intervention is this lipid nanoparticle that specifically targets uh, lung uh, endothelium. Uh, and they call the, these lung LNPs. And these lung LNPs, this is why this other guy, uh, this other uh, investigator, Michael Mitchell, is on the paper. He is an engineer um, at UPenn. And in a previous story, uh, the Mitchell group had developed a bunch of LNPs that had different tropisms for different organs. So they got these LNPs that will home in preferentially, in this case, in the lung, and they loaded these with VEGF RNA and showed that if you deliver, if you inject these into the tail vein, these lung LNPs, these LU LNPs, they, they improve. They don't, I don't know about rescue. They, they improve the regeneration phenotype of this knockout phenotype that they showed with the TGF beta receptor specifically knocked out in endothelium, they can mitigate that. So they kind of short circuit 
and, and rescue with the lost VEGF. They add it back with the low LPs and they show it does better. I mean, science transitional medicine, I think for certain in terms of the LNPs, which are now, I think the new wave of therapy since COVID vaccination made them commonplace. So a lot of people come with LNPs and these are probably ready for prime time, I would guess, therapeutically. But uh, I think there's a lot of questions remaining about whether or not the VEGF delivery in the context of injury would actually have a, a beneficial effect. And I'm sure that's what they're working on now is outside of this knockout model where there really is a huge deficiency uh, at the genetic level in the VEGF signaling. Uh, maybe the question is, is adding more to, to the system enough? You know, rescuing a broken system is one thing, but is it enough to add more VEGF in these patients that are struggling with the downstream effects of, of viral pneumonia? Maybe. I think it's something that we should certainly try. Yeah, I think um, really cool mechanistic study coupled to the translational element of science translational medicine. Of course, it's a great journal for studies like this, which have both sides of the coin, right? Um, I think anytime, and I think you're hinting at this, anytime you're regulating VEGF and targeting VEGF to points of injury, you got to be really careful because as we know, VEGF is a pretty powerful molecule um, and there's a lot of things to consider when it comes to delivering VEGF. VEGF is, it, it is, is magical in a lot of ways, uh, but it can have unintended consequences. Um, and there are, this is not the first time and this will not be the last time that VEGF is being utilized for therapeutic applications when it comes to angiogenesis and that sort of thing. Uh, there are applications in the eye. I can go on forever about this, right? But I think one of the things um, that got me really excited about this paper was the LNP aspect and how you can regulate the tropism of these LNPs to whatever uh, tissue type you're interested in. I think that's very powerful as a delivery modality. And um, I'd love to actually take a deeper dive into some of those other LNP uh, stocks that they actually have in their laboratory. Yeah, I, I like that element too. I mean, although in this paper, it kind of glossed over it. I had to dig real deep to see what was the basis of that lung tropism. And, and there is a whole paper about it. Um, but yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I would say the lung and the liver, you inject something, you want to find it, look in the lung and the liver. First the liver, but I would say the lung is also a major target. So the tropism there... I think maybe leaves something to be desired. I'd be really excited. You know, I work in the ovary. My great wish is we can find some LNP that can home specifically to the ovary. Uh, in my, you know, in preliminary studies that we've done, when we deliver mo modified RNA, you get like a thousand fold. You know, there's like one unit goes to the ovary and a thousand go to the liver. So uh, there's real questions about whether or not we can get that tropism to work for us. But yeah, clearly, I think that was was what drove this story forward, was was the LNP, the mod RNA, not for no reason, Drew Weissman, Nobel laureate, uh, is listed amongst the authors here. I think that this is 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 following on the momentum of LNPs and mod RNA as a therapeutic. And yeah, VEGF. I mean, VEGF, you know, Moderna was founded pretty much on this notion of VEGF mRNA in the heart. Uh, Ken Chen hashed out. Now at the Karolinska in the spa somewhere, getting a mani-pedi, living it up with that VEGF into the heart uh, modality that really, I think, uh, pushed uh, Moderna forward, although vaccine is what everyone recognizes it for. But I, I think the tip of the spear was, was VEGF. 
And as you also alluded to there, VEGF, it's been tried before, non-productive angiogenesis much. I mean, it's not always going to be good. Um, so we have to we have to be careful about how we apply it. But as therapeutics go, VEGF, it's it's gotten past the FDA and it has helped a lot of people, you know, with the macular degeneration. There's there's therapeutics out there with VEGF at the root. So I could see this getting into into a trial. Yeah, actually, quick follow-up question. You talk about the ovarian tropism. I mean, that's something that obviously you know a lot about, but is there any sort of delivery modality out there that has any sort of tropism for the ovary, or is it really just nothing out there? Well, uh, a collaborator of mine, uh, Lior Zangi, I think, has has done a lot of work toward this. He, he didn't invent it or anything, but there's an idea of using, and this is a long, we got to talk about this on another show, but the idea is effectively you deliver the mRNA everywhere and it gets destroyed in every site as a self-destruct in the embedded in the mRNA systemically, except in the target organ where you engineer a kind of a rescue. So you deliver it everywhere um, and it only gets translated in the ovary. That's the current approach that we're using. It's based on microRNAs that are specific for an organ. But even that is tough. As I said, you know, just in terms of where the RNA is going to go via circulation, you're going to get a thousand fold or many orders of magnitude increase to certain organs versus others. Uh, even with the embedded self-destruct system, some of that's going to leak through and you worry about off-target expression. So yeah, the tropism thing is an open question that I don't think we're going to crack anytime soon, which is why vaccines, uh, systemic therapies, uh, where off-target is not a concern, those are going to be the first line for for LNP mod RNAs. But we're way off target, Arun. We got to bring it back to center. We have a great interview coming with Shiri. I can't wait for that. She's such a charming individual. Um, before we get there, though, I have a quick message from Stem Cell Technologies. Cell Therapy News is celebrating its 25th anniversary. This free weekly newsletter brought to you by Stem Cell Science News summarizes the latest research, news, jobs, and events in cell therapy research. Sign up at www.celltherapynews.com to keep up with the next generation of research and innovation and join the celebration. All right, you guys, with us today, we have a special guest from the University of California, San Diego, where she is assistant professor of medicine in the Division of Regenerative Medicine Dr. Shiri Gur-Cohen, who just started her lab just over a year ago, hailing from my neck of the woods over here at my alma mater, the Rockefeller University, where she was in the lab of Elaine Fuchs, but now has her own spot over there at UCSD. The Gur-Cohen lab takes an inside look into the world of epithelial stem cells that are the key to unlocking the secret on how to renew our body surface, replenish dying cells, and repair wounds. Maybe a little bit about baldness in there too, although that's more cosmetic. We're going deeper, uh, more therapeutic, but hey, some people care about this. We'll get there. Uh, Dr. Gurkohan, thank you so much for joining us today for this conversation. Thank you so much for hosting me. It's really a great pleasure. I'm a big fan and being here together with you and talk about the science that we're doing. It's really, really exciting. So thank you so much for hosting. Yeah. Thanks for being here, Sherry. It's, you know, thanks for finally joining us here on the show. We've loved talking about all of your amazing work on the hair follicle lymphatic remodeling over the last couple of years. We've covered a number of your papers and it's actually like Dylan says, it's 
great timing for you to be here on the show since you just started up your own lab. Congratulations. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I mean, we love showcasing brand new PIs. So actually, why don't you start off by giving us an overview of what you want your lab to work on in the immediate future? So what's the new Gurkhoen lab all about? So my lab studies, um, what we like to say is basically looking at the stem cells throughout their life history. And I know that this sounds kind of big word. What does it mean through their life history? We're trying to understand how those stem cells are born, how those stem cells build our tissues that we can then rebuild our tissues when we need to how do they regenerate it on demand when we have wounds when we we need to rebuild those tissues um, when we have an injury um, and then later down the road we want to understand how those stem cells that um, largely fuel tumor growth how do they do it who do they communicate with and um, how we can leverage that knowledge to prevent those stem cells from going to the wrong um, um, part of their activity and so this is kind of like around their throughout their life history of those stem cells we're particularly interested in epithelial stem cells that cover our epithelial tissues specifically the skin um and i think in many um aspects that dalen just mentioned before you know boldness and aging um these are if you think about it this is the first organ in your body that you look at and you're saying oh my god i'm starting to age right you can see your liver you can see your lung you can see your skin and it's very apparent on your skin that something is starting to happening um, and so um, for us, it's really amazing because our skin is really a reflection of what is happening with our stem cells throughout their life history. And we can really leverage that knowledge, not only to regenerate our external tissues, but also maybe to rebuild tissues um, on demand. Well, I mean, there's so much there. And I love the skin as a model because, as you just said, it's such a great metaphor for everything that we do in our, our horizon, you know, our our both for better and worse. It's where we're headed. And also therapeutically speaking, there's a lot of, I guess, cosmetic applications, but that are representative of the renewal that we can see, you know, that manifests externally, but we would also like to, to manifest and, and try and um, initiate internally for our internal organs. So the skin, it's a great kind of avatar for all of us uh, as, as stem cell researchers and people are invested in regenerative medicine. And, you know, there's, there's so many ways in which the mechanisms of skin stem cell aging and renewal um, can be, I think, applied broadly in the lessons we learn and the tools and techniques. So yeah, the skin is great for, for so many reasons. And it's it's ubiquitous, our largest organ. I think of it in some ways kind of like, you know, the vascular system. You know, I trained with Shaheen Rafi, who, if nothing else, he really hammered home angiocrine, boss, angiocrine. His enthusiasm for the, the centrality of vascular cells, the signaling hubs, it's, it was infectious. I'm sure you felt some of that too being in the neighborhood. Um, and he would always lament that blood vessels, they aren't, they aren't just plumbing, boss. Uh, but uh, lymphatics arguably get paid even shorter shrift to, to, to stay with that plumbing analogy. They've been appreciated mostly, I think, medically as a kind of like wastewater line for return of all the interstitial fluid into circulation. While the system has been, you know, appreciated widely for its role in immune defense, I think the function of lymphatic endothelium specifically in tissue homeostasis 
regeneration has really, I think, only come to the fore in the last few years in, in large part due to your work. So tell us about that and how the function of lymphatics in your you know, current and future research could be leveraged in regenerative therapies. So I actually have a nice story, I think, that kind of starting from the point that you started this discussion about blood vessels in a way. So my trainings, um, I started my PhD actually in hematopoietic stem cells that reside in the bone marrow. And I was working about how the blood circulatory system um, and the endothelium of the sinusoids can actually um, maintain hematopoietic stem cells in their bone marrow um, and what are the signaling between them. And so when I started my postdoc, I was actually very interested to understand if there's different blood types or endothelial cells that can actually um, regulate skin stem cells, epithelial stem cells in uh, different ways. And you mentioned the skin, how amazing um, organ system it is. It's also a house for multiple types of stem cells, not only the stem cells that create the surface of our skin that we see on our body. It's also a house for stem cells that create our hair follicles. It's a stem cells that create our glands that's important for them, the, the sebaceous gland and sweat glands and all of that is lots of stuff and melanocytes that create our colors. Um, all of those are stem cells that are all together in one very compact niche. And so to me, it was really exciting to understand, just a second, is there a possibility that different vascular system can control different system um, in a way that we want them to work together in a synchronized way? So I actually started looking at blood vessels in the skin. Um, and throughout imaging, and I think, you know, I'm a very visual person, so I wanted to, you know, go deeper into like how it looks like. I want to see it in my own eyes. Um, so I worked a lot to kind of develop um, or adjust a different um, uh, clearing techniques. So to and we can talk about it a little bit later uh, technology-wise in terms of tissue clearing, um, but that really allowed me to dive deeper into the structure of the vascular system in the skin. And all of a sudden, we saw those kind of very dilated vessels that are really, really tightly associated with um, specific type of stem cells in the skin, and those are the hair follicle stem cells. Um, again, from my very naive point of view at the beginning, I thought that they were blood vessels, just very dilated one and big ones. And I wanted to understand which, which one they are. And it's a great story because I think it really reflects about how um, innovative science um, goes with two to think. Like you need two people to think to actually get innovative science together. And I think, you know, without actually sharing those results, with my colleagues and having those brainstorming um, session with them. And then one of my colleagues said, you know what? It doesn't look to me like blood vessels. And I was, you know what? Let's, let's give it a try and then see if it's actually, you know, lymphatics. And Lord behold, I was sitting in front of the microscope. I think it was Friday evening or something like that, looking at the microscope and it was glowing marker for lymphatic vascular system. Um, Completely honest with both of you, I think I was, I actually cried and not from being happy because I was, you know, in my brain, it was like blood vessels that regulate stem cells. I had no idea what lymphatic vessels are. Um, it gave me a huge lesson in science of how you need to be open for things that you never expected to find because maybe it's actually an amazing thing to, to find. 
it took me a few days to kind of, okay, reset my thinking. And maybe it's actually a very cool new thing that nobody thought before. Um, and this is how the story started of, okay, we have a completely new vessel type that traditionally we always consider it to be the garbage can of the body, if you think about it, right? You know, it's absorb all of those immune cells that already took the antigen for immune surveillance, which is the most important job that was um, kind of studied around them. Um, and then later down the road, we we understood that they are absorbing all the um, fluids and macromolecules and toxins, all of those garbage things that we don't want to have in the surrounding of our tissues. We never thought about them as a niche, right? And a niche for us is what maintains stem cells, is what preserves stem cells, what they need for their survival and for youthfulness. Um, so that really kind of, I think that result, one single result in front of the microscope in a Friday night really kind of, you know, open up a whole new horizon for me as a scientist. I think a huge lesson in scientific discovery and collaborative science. So uh, I think, you know, in all ways, um, it was an amazing experience for me that I'm trying to also, you know, we talked about like being a PI that only a year um, in, I see my own um, trainees facing things like that, that they never ex expected to find in their results. And I'm, oh, maybe it's a great thing. And they're like, no, it's not. <laughs> Oh, that's such an amazing story. I mean, it also kind of is evident in the passion for the work that you have. You know, it all started with that one Friday night in the lab, right? And here you are in a brand new PI, just getting started with this amazing career ahead of you. Um, you mentioned how you're a very visual person, and I am as well. And I think, you know, part of the reason that you're able to make these discoveries is because of all these amazing new imaging modalities that you've helped develop and that you've utilized to their fullest potential, you know. Um, I mean, this is one of my favorite things about being in the modern era of science is like all of these really cool imaging technologies that enable these mechanistic discoveries. So talk to us about that. I mean, you started you know, mentioning it, just the power of imaging, how you've been able to leverage these high resolution imaging you know, modalities for your studies and just the beauty of it all. Yeah. So I think, you know, we grew up in kind of like seeing is believing, right, in many ways. Um I like to see things in my eyes. It helps me to imagine how things happening. Um, I always imagine myself as kind of like a virtual tour inside of our tissues. I want to be this kind of like the small little molecule that see everything from different directions. So I think the three-dimensional view of biological tissues and biological process is something that I always was very fascinated about. Um, and we can, I think, you know, separate it to two two eras, right? You know, one is actually to see what is happening as a snapshot. And then the other option is, um, I want to see it moving, right? You know, thinking about microscopy now of how, of the high resolution we can get of how the, and the ER is moving and, and the dynamic of the ER, it's fascinating to me. It's, it's absolutely amazing. So I think, um, again, from my own perspective, I need to see things, I need to kind of feel them and kind of imagining them in my own brain to kind of even think about the next steps. So um, thinking about the blood vessels, right, I think, and being in Elaine Fuchs lab, which, you know, studied for 
30 years the skin and, and made huge discoveries and I think um, really pioneered the field of stem cells and epithelial stem cells, um, especially in the skin. Um, being in that lab was kind of coming up with the blood vascular system. They all know that blood vessels are there. They all know that it's vascularized, but the dermis at least is vascular tissues, tissue. Uh, but I think we never thought about it in terms of the structure and where they are in a three-dimensional way. Um, and so I needed to kind of think creatively of how I can take the whole tissue now and preserving the structure, still preserving the whole structure and seeing everything in uh, using the microscope. Um, at that time, I mean, tissue clearing was already well established um, in many, many organs, including, I think, full embryos, right? You know, you can take a full embryo and visualize the whole thing. The skin particularly is a tough tissue because it's full of keratin, it's full of color, right? Melanocytes that create melanin. It's a tough tissue. The ECM is much more compact than soft tissues. So I think I needed to adjust a little bit kind of known technologies, um, bringing some concept from um, optics and physics to understand how those components can work in a better way for the particular tissue that I'm working with. And eventually it worked really, really nicely. Um, um, I think we're constantly developing it more and more to make it better. Um, but that really allows me, I think, the first view of how the vascular system looks in the skin. And again, maybe a nice story again from my postdoc going to Elaine's um, office. Again, a person that pioneered this field. You know, it's a, it's a, it's amazing to sit there and kind of show her something new that she hasn't seen in the skin before. Uh, but she looked at those images and she's like what am I looking at? <laughs> it was basically, in many ways, I know how it looks like in two dimension, right? I'm, we know, we all know how it looks like in two dimension, but all of a sudden, the three dimension of it was very, very exciting to look at. Um, I think throughout my time there, many people wanted to see even their own immune cells that we know in, in 2D how they look like, um, where they're localized. But in three dimension, all of a sudden you can see who else they're interacting with, um, how it looks like around the tissue, because our tissues obviously are not two dimension. Um, in many ways, we're trying to develop it more and more in, into um, uh, live imaging and deep imaging that allows us to look at how cells are actually moving and and interacting with this is still work in progress, but um, but I think you know the the huge jump or the leap toward looking at the vascular system um, throughout the microscope really helped me. I think you know to understand that I need to develop something new or to adjust something new um, from a known um, technology, um, and. Um, and it was absolutely amazing the first time to look at this under the microscope. Again, it was only blood vessels looking back then because this is what my brain was oriented toward and gravitated toward. Um, but, uh, but it was absolutely amazing. Yeah, I mean, I think the three of us are the same in that respect, that imaging is such a driver of our interests, you know, and uh, the pictures that you get out of the systems that we respectively use can be so illustrative of like the end point, right? Like that's the answer almost is this is what it looks like 
or it's the first the beginning of, of asking a lot of questions at, at least and imaging has progressed a lot you know i mean i think uh, we've gone from static to you know 2d to 3d and then the time lapse and that's kind of mirrored by the the kind of cell lineage hierarchy even in transcriptomics now that's coming out where amazingly you can see a cell and also see all of its you know forebears and the transcriptomic uh, profile of those at the single cell level so yeah the technology is advancing at a rapid clip and the tools we're able to exert to ask questions are getting better and better and and you as someone again we keep coming back to it is at the beginning of your own independent career as a pi I don't want to say it's on you, but this is who, you know, this is why the system exists as it does. You say, you go to Elaine, you got to show her these new results. It's because, yes, yeah, she's, you guys are the legs on which she stands. And, you know, the list of all the people, Cedric Lampin, Valerie Horsley, Valentina Greco, yourself, Ting Chen, I might go. Oh on. my God, you put me together with all of these amazing people. <laughs> I mean, Elaine, it's an amazing pedigree. Um, and, uh I think that the, what I'm getting at here is that you're the driver, right? The, the youth is the driver and these young PIs are the ones that bring the new tech to the old questions and are able to interpret the answers in new ways and come to the truth. Um, and a lot of that's like telling a story, right? You're talking about telling stories with images. You also, you tell stories like story stories and talks, I think that are more akin to, instead of like the more scientific talk that we see it for, say the ISSCR, which is really just for, stem cell researchers, I would say, and enthusiasts, you've given talks that are much more lay, like more akin to the TED talk. I caught this, I caught this lecture of yours, uh, Fantastic Stem Cells and Where to Find Them, which is posted on a University of California television YouTube channel. That episode alone has over 250,000 views uh, and not for no reason. Great presentation, accessible to a lay audience, entertaining, uh, most of all, informative and, and stimulating, even for me, uh, who has a close eye to the field. You know, I learned some new stuff there. I got excited and invigorated by it. Um, and it seems now like the role of this citizen in science, I count my Arun and I, it's a great honor to be a science communicator. I love the role. Uh, but it seems like it's a role that's increasing in the profile. The citizen in science, particularly in the state of California, um, it's kind of unique because, you know, since Prop 71 was approved in 2004, coming on two decades now, um, thereby establishing this public support mechanism for stem cell research, it seems like, you know, that we're trying to communicate the results to the public, to the taxpayers. So it's a big role to play for you there. Um, I mean, here, we got a really niche audience on the show, speaking mostly to stem cell scientists, but UCTV, as I said, that one alone got a quarter million. UCTV at large gets 5 million views monthly. So as a relatively new PI, tell us, does that platform, first of all, I mean, congratulations on the opportunity, uh, maybe a little bit of pressure to perform at such a high level as a young PI, but also does that platform feed back into your lab's growth and productivity? It kind of raises the profile, right? Tell us how that's worked out for you. So first, thank you so much for all the compliments. I mean, I really enjoying um, hearing that you enjoyed it. Um, I don't think initially I even know that knew that it's going to reach that type of kind of, um, you know, how many views this video will get. Um, and I'm happy that it is, of course. Um, I think um, I fully agree with you that as a scientist, um, we are doing our science. We are always interested in what we're doing. We are 
enthusiastic and excited, excited beyond words about our findings. But at the end of the day, um, people need to understand what we are doing and what the what it, what it means, right? You know, I we published that lymphatics are a niche for stem cells, but what it actually means, right? What, what, what it means for their own life, what it means for their healthy aging, for their diseases, right? At the end of the day, what does it mean for me of what I'm eating, how I sleep, <laughs> um, how the day-to-day -day, uh, life of individual can actually improve based on our science? And I think, you know, this is something that we are, we're living, we're, you know, going to sleep and we're waking up with stem cells in our brain, but people can need to understand why is that important. Um, to me specifically, I think, you know, it's, it's a mission that I took on myself. Um, you know, I, the video that really reached, you know, a lot of views really gave me also like, you know, the further boost how important it is. I'm getting a lot of emails of people that, you know, saw the video and had those questions and, and I'm really enjoying to communicate that with the with the public. Um, I do think that as scientists, we need to do a better job in 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 getting that type of information to the audience, and especially when we're talking about diseases, especially when we're talking. And recently, we were talking a lot about those um, stem cell therapies um, that are not necessarily FDA approved, things like that. That I think at least. The basic understanding is something that is really, really missing. We understand it because we are reading those papers in a maybe a different level of understanding. Um, but bridging that into the uh, um, audience, as much as like, you know, when I'm trying to explain what I'm doing to my own, you know, family, to my mom, to my dad, right? You know, they want to understand what am I doing? And then at the end of the day, they actually ask me, oh, so if I'm eating this and this, or if I sleep in this um, more or less would it affect my stem cell activation, for example. And these are the simple things that I think we can do better, we can communicate better. Um, enabling the public to judge by themselves based on um, information that they can understand. Um, and and I think, you know, I, I took it in a way, you know, as a new PI, I think also as a mission, and I'm really happy to be in an environment, UC San Diego is really a great environment to um, have that interface with patients, with, um, with the public. Um, and, um, you know, those videos are really um, reaching everywhere in the world. So it's not only my own small little community, but it's, it's actually reaching everywhere. So being in a um, in a place that give you that type of platform to say what you want. And, um, you know, next June, I think we're going to have another episode about rejuvenation and healthy aging as well. So, um, you know, things like that, that we are going to do better and better and trying to um, navigate that type of information to um, to the audience as much as we can and to reach as broad audience as we can and I enjoy it I think it's it's a mission that we need to have actually as scientists I mean let's be honest we are funded by federal money and at the end of the day this needs to go back to the public not only in terms of drugs but also in terms of understanding of um, how important what we're doing in basic science because at the end of the day I think I'm really um enthusiastic about the basic science, right? So I want to understand how stem cells are working, how they're rebuilding tissues, 
maybe not necessarily at that point that we'll have a drug or um, a transplantation protocol that will be applicable. But that information is something that we can definitely tell to the public. Why is that important? Why what we are doing can actually lead at the end of the road to something that can be beneficial for their life? Yeah, and I think it's obvious that you have a gift for this. You are a, a very gifted science communicator. I mean, that's just very clear for just chatting with you here on the show. Uh, I think your passion for the science that you do is just so evident. And um, I think you should keep at it. Keep doing what you're doing. I mean, honestly, I I, I, agree I mean, you. you guys, this platform, look <laughs> at this. It's amazing. I mean, <laughs> you're coming for our jobs. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I mean, you know, part of this is I think we've all been mentored by people who are exceptionally gifted science communicators. I think our, our mentors are, they got to where they are in part because they're able to communicate science, both orally, both you know, in written terms, in terms of grants, papers, all these kind of things, they have to be a good science communicator to kind of get to this level, right? I think uh, the best PIs are good science communicators in that way. And so, you know, it takes a village to to raise and train a scientist and learn not just the science, but also the, the communication part of the science. And, you know, you, of course, did your postdoc with the iconic Elaine Fuchs, as we were discussing here on the show, master of all things skin and skin stem cells. And I think all of us in the stem cell field are in awe of Dr. Fuchs and what she's accomplished over the years. So, I mean, what was your biggest takeaway from your time in the Fuchs lab? And it doesn't have to be something science related. What was, you know, just a takeaway that you had from being in the presence of Elaine? So I can fully agree with you. I mean, like working with Elaine is absolutely amazing. It's inspiring on a daily basis. She, I mean, you know, I think throughout my career and also where I am right now, I'm choosing to work with, um, I think, you know, women that really broke the ceiling, uh, the glass ceiling in order to be successful. Um, so I worked with Elaine Pukes and now with Kat Jemison. Um, I think those are just people that really, you know, shooting for the stars and not being afraid of doing it, um, being outspoken and, um, inspiring really really inspiring and in many ways you just see how their excitement about their science about collaborative work about um how in many many ways care about you and i think if there's something that i'm really taking from you know not it is scientific as much as it is non-scientific but people that really care about you about your success about your happiness about um, your health um, and um, enabling an environment that is accepting for who you are as a scientist and not because of your gender, because your background, because of your income, because of whatever you are coming from. It is who you are as a scientist and we'll do everything that we can in our power to make you both happy and successful. And this is something that I'm taking to my own lab. Um, about each and every one of my people um, deeply. And, um, you know, we all know how many setbacks we have in science um, almost on a daily basis. And it's really, really important. I mean, we call it at least the sandwich kind of approach that at least to ensure that we are celebrating as much as we are trying to learn from our mistakes. Um, and to really enable an environment that everyone feels belongs and, and not, you know, the imposter syndrome is something that we all experience at one point or another, but having a leader, someone that you're looking up to and, and seeing and that cares about you, I think, 
means a lot. It really means a lot. It's not just I'm working here for the next step. I'm building myself. I'm learning new things and I'm enjoying the process. Um, and I think all of that is something that I I had, you know, working with Elaine and now working with Kat, um, you know, is really powerful, inspiring um, leaders in their field um, in science and beyond, I think, uh, opened the door for so many of us that um, hopefully we will reach to the point that, you know, we are all, we don't have those boundaries anymore, right? You know, and many times we're talking about equity and diversity all the time. At the end of the day, in my own lab, and I think, you know, in the labs that I've, um, in Elaine's lab, we're always trying to just not have those, you know, borders anymore. Like, why do we need them? Um, at the end of the day, we can all have equal opportunities, but if there are still those obstacles, we will never have equal opportunities. People will never look at me as a scientist for who I am. Um, we don't want those obstacles anymore. And so I'm trying to, you know, have the same experience that I had in my postdoc. Nobody looked at me in, like in terms of where I came, who I am, my gender. I am as a scientist, my 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 thoughts, my brain, my intelligence, my personality was the most important thing and making sure that I'm happy throughout the process. And, and these are things that I'm taking with me uh, to my own lab. Yeah, I mean, that, it's really, uh, I think, something to aspire to. I've seen, I've had great mentors myself and I've seen great mentorship. Um, and I've spoken to people who've had great mentors. And I think yeah, what you say all really rings true, creating and fostering an environment that's inclusive, that breaks down barriers where everyone can, you know, uh, have their ideas stand on their own merit, right? Um, and, you know, that's, I think, the secret to success in science. Another thing, though, that I will say is the kind of intrepid spirit, both in, in a lab, you know, the boldness, the encouraging of, of young scientists in particular, to, to swing for the fences. Um, and I think that's fostered at the lab level, also at the institute level, uh, at the Rockefeller University, for sure, they do that. But um, before then, uh, your doctoral training, you were at another powerhouse, the Weizmann Institute, where you did your doctor with Svi Lapido, also an amazing mentor to many powerhouse scientists, a great lineage. So you got great pedigree, Shiri, I got to say. Uh, the Weizmann has uh, had a long history of innovation, trail, trailblazing science. Um, and, and the recent work by Jacob Hanna, I would argue, who's a, a great friend of the show, fits this description, is a great illustration of that. Um, specifically, I mean, I don't have to say it, but I will. The labs work pioneering this ex vivo embryo modeling. Um, I think that represents an advance for, for all of us in the field who were drawn initially perhaps by the potential to ask basic questions about human development that's what brought me into the game is i wanted to see inside that box right um so what's your take on these human embryo models their potential impact the field generally and perhaps even how they might be used to address questions that are specific to your field lymphatic development and or function and the skin what are your thoughts there yeah, well, the Weizmann is a home, obviously, um, you know, in many ways, all of those institutions that I've chosen the end, I think, to go um, really enabling that type of collaborative free freedom to ask those basic, simple questions that we want to understand. And part of them, you're talking about the human embryos. I mean, I wish that 
Jacob could <laughs> actually be here with us. I miss him deeply. Um, and, you know, in many ways, our ability, we're always talking about, you know, those stem cells that can rebuild an organ. In human embryos, we are not just building a function unit that we can study in the very, very beginning of how we, we started, right? I think we're really looking at synchronized growth. Throughout evolution, I think in many ways, we'll, this is like one aspect of development. And now I'm taking it a little bit to feel that I feel more comfortable of, of maybe. Um, but throughout um, evolution, I think one thing the human lost in many ways is this type of synchronized regeneration where blood vessels, nerves, epithelial cells are all working together in a way to rebuild a complete organ. If we are losing a limb, we lose it forever, right? Our genes didn't change much, let's be honest. Um, they didn't change much, but somehow we lost that ability to synchronize that type of regeneration. But it happens beautifully during development. Why is it happening there and not later down the road? It's the same cells, the same genes. What is happening? To me, that is a fascinating system um, um, to study that type of interactions about different different cell type, different types of stem cells and different types of organ that are building themselves in order to build who we are at the end. Um, what are the differences between, you know, when we are born to the time that we are aging, right? You know, can we actually take more of those principles and still not risking ourselves of developing cancer? Um, again, under the same consequence, uh, the same principles that um, our genes haven't changed much throughout, um, you know, and especially within the same person, right? Um, but at the end of the day, we do see um, increased risk of cancer. We do see uh, increased risk of many other diseases throughout. So there are some environmental things that are affecting our stem cells and our body. And throughout those models, we can really maybe pare down what happened at the beginning when we're just born, not exposing to anything, right? You know, at that point, we're not exposing a lot to bacteria. We are not exposing a lot to the external environment um, and understanding those really basic principles. Um, so I think obviously that it is, it's a huge leap in stem cell research and understanding developmental biology um, from, um, you know, there are other aspects that we can think about, you know, that we can, how long can we pick, keep those embryos? So this is a completely different type of discussion, I think. Um, obviously, it's it's an amazing, amazing leap forward for our scientific endeavor. And, and I'm really excited to see you know, where it will take us, what we will learn from it from a developmental point of view. And for me personally, from evolutionary point of view, why we lost something that we used to have and all of a sudden we don't. Yeah, it's it's an amazing area of study. And in my mind, I think some of these early developmental models are probably the hottest area of study right now in stem cell biology. It's like I open my computer, turn on my computer, and there's a new embryo model out there almost like every single day. But hey, that's that's kind of the world we're, we're living in right now, right? And I mean, you're at an amazing institution to help tackle some of these questions and collaborate with not just amazing developmental biologists, stem cell biologists, but clinicians. I mean, you're at UC San Diego, which is a, a stem cell powerhouse and a hotbed of scientific innovation and talent in greater San Diego. I mean, you've got amazing institutes all around, Scripps right next door, Salk Institute. It's a great place to be, right? 
it's the pentagon of science here <laughs> exactly and just up the road you have la don't forget about la um but i mean it's a great place to be in sunny san diego i mean you're a brand new pi and i'm sure you had a bunch of offers to to go and start your new lab in in different places but what was it ultimately that made you decide to make san diego and uc san diego your your new home um, I think, you know, the same principles that um, led me throughout my career is who am I going to work with um, and who were the people. So, you know, I, I like in a way to surround myself with people that I look up to, um, surround myself with people that are smart, that are creative, collaborative. Um, and of course, you know, resources are important, but in the global world, at the end of the day, that was something that. I can always, you know, collaborate with people if I need something or specific technique that I don't have in my own lab. Um, so to me, the people component, I think, was very, very important. Um, the support of basic science together with, you know, if at the end of the day we will have a small molecule or a technology that we want to develop further to have that type of infrastructure already in place, um, the biggest thing is really, really the people in my division. Kat um, is one of the, you know, main, I think, person that really led me. I want to work with her. Um, again, I told her, like, she's shooting to the stars, not, you know, metaphorically. She's putting cells in space, um, studying how stem cells in space react to, you know, gravity and and um, how they age differently in space um looking at working with people i think that just not afraid of taking risk um believing in you when you are taking your own risk i'm taking risk on a daily basis doing a lot of maybe people can think very crazy and you know having those people that think go for it it's it's important question um it's imp for me was um the major aspect of it um, not to mention, and I think, you know, in many ways, having working with clinician and being more um, on that side, I think in all of throughout my career, the Weizmann Institute, Rockefeller University, I didn't have a lot of interaction with clinicians. Um, here at UCC, I have a lot. Um, and it's inspiring and stimulating is one. It's, you know, in many ways, understanding better what are the gaps in clinics that are needed. For example, we're working on cancer stem cells and therapy resistance. And um, many of those aspects that you can read, um, you know, in the literature, not necessarily what happened in a day-to-day -day clinic. And collaborating with these clinicians and understanding the needs that are in the clinic really helps me, I think, you know, not only to refine my questions, but also refine my methodology and way that we are approaching things in order to address a specific question, for example, in therapy resistant that happens squamosal carcinoma. Um, so, so that was something, you know, a big bonus that happened throughout the process that I, um, that I'm so thankful for. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I bet Arun would agree being at Cedars. Um, but for me, I was a big transition from very academic, basic to working more close to positions. And it was such a, a revolution for me and a change of thinking and approach because I realized that you get so into the weeds about the technique you've developed and the questions you can answer. Sometimes you need to step back and talk to somebody about like whether or not it's it's relevant or how relevant and, and what the un, un, unanswered questions are. And 
also i'm sure uh arun can can empathize with uh or understand your your admiration i admire him for sure these space scientists you know it takes a lot of courage i would love to be around and work with somebody where like the experiment step one is put your cell culture on a rocket and send it into, into orbit like i mean wow i would go with them honestly i would go with them to do the experiments there just take me <laughs> Arun is a courageous, he's young. I'll give him that. He's young and he's got courage and I really admire him and the rest of all those people that are, are doing the hard work in space. So I totally get your admiration um, for your peers there and how people really govern the choice. You got to go where the good people are. And you can also say it that after spending your doctorate in Israel, which is balmy, and then your postdoc in, in frigid New York, you were like, I'm going back to some warm weather. It's okay, Shiri. It's okay to become... <laughs> Honestly, I think we just talked about it this morning that I feel like I've been tricked that San Diego is not cold. Um, it is, I think, you know, in many ways in New York because everything is just warm, like, you know, heated, but you don't feel this cold. Um, but um, generally speaking, I think, you know, I'm not, I'm not regretting for seeing more sunshine. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, look, at, you look warmer than I am. I'm here recording in a sweatshirt because it's so cold outside that I'm even cold inside. But enough about the weather. We're done with this interview, almost. Uh, we had a great time talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing everything you had to, to share um, about your experience as a kind of a mentee and a mentor at that transition in your life and all the work you're doing. Before we let you go, we have a couple brief questions just to get more into you know your non-scientist self, get to know you a little bit better. First, what is one hobby that you always wanted to pursue but were never able to? Mm. It's interesting because we started to talk about um, imaging and you know seeing is believing and how you know a visual person um, I am. Um, I think in many many ways I love art and I would. This is one thing that I really wanted to do more and more and I didn't have the chance to do. Um, I think painting would be one of them. Um, one hobby that I would love to have more time for it is and to develop would be um, painting. Hmm. I'd look at your paintings. You're a brilliant microscopic artist, so I'm sure you could do some with some brushes as well. Uh, finally, if you're not a scientist, what do you think you would be doing with your life? Well, it comes a little bit with science, though. Um, when I was, um, I don't know if you guys know the book, um, The Microbe Hunter, um, but there's basically, uh, it's telling, you know, the story about all of the very, very beginning of those discoveries of little microbes that we had no tools to see. And, you know, the first is uh, about Livinghawk that developed kind of the first microscope, if we think about it. Um, to me, you know, one thing, if I weren't a scientist, um, you know, that was inspiring for me always kind of like to see something that I can't see in my own eye. And I would most likely, um, do something with photography and, um, looking through a different type of lens, but macro photography, most likely. <laughs> Well, I'm not surprised. I think all your answers convey different ways of seeing the world. And I think uh, they all converge on one ultimate goal for all of us as scientists, which is see through it all to the truth. Uh, and you're really making some amazing contributions along those lines. And you're just at the start. So we're really excited to see what, what comes from your lab and to get you back on here 
sooner rather than later to expound upon all your thoughts and progress. Siri, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for hosting me. Thank you so much for everything you're doing, you know, just again, bridging those kind of information uh, about stem cells and how amazing those cells are and how they're the center of the universe. So thank you so much. All right, everybody, that brings us to the end of this episode. Don't forget to subscribe to our newsletter at www.stemcellpodcast.com to get the show notes, including an episode summary and links to all the interview and roundup papers. You can also reach out to us on X at Stem Cell Podcast or by email at info at stemcellpodcast.com with feedback or to suggest guests. For another couple of weeks, you're going to have to do without us. But until then, check out those stem cell papers and send us some comments. Tell us who you want to hear from, please. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Thank you.